Good morning, ladies. What a pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. I want to just start by thanking all of the women in the Bronx ministry um, for your preparation, for the time, the energy, the prayers that you put, the decorations. There's so much for us to enjoy today. Thank you so much for your effort in putting this service together. Um, truly, I am thankful and honored to be a part of the service and to speak to you this morning. When I look around, I see so many familiar faces, some uh, just from being a part of the church for many years, some I know through my children, some of you I know through the great friend that you were to my mother-in-law who was a part of this ministry. When I think of you, I see women who are strong and who are faithful and who are resilient and really bring so much glory to God. And you have some wonderful women who serve you here in the ministry. Um, Zainabu, who just has such a pure heart for God, uh, just a simple faith in God. I really appreciate her. And um, thank you, Cynthia, for your words in introducing me. I mean, Cynthia is a friend, is a big sister to me, is a mentor. Um, there's so many things that I've learned from you about being a wife, about being a mother, about being a woman who is uh, strong in the Lord and, and has a, a foundation in the scriptures. And um, I'm just grateful, grateful to be here, grateful to be influenced by such incredible women. And um, I want to thank the sisters who've already been a part of the service, who've had so much courage in sharing their stories. It's not an easy thing to share about things that have happened in your life, and but um Thank you. Thank you so much for opening your hearts, for letting us know that you're real and we, we can connect with you and understand the struggles you've gone through and um, how God has worked in your life. So I want to say thank you for that. Thank you so much, all of you, for inviting me. Um, the title of our service today is The Love of My Life. The Love of My Life. And I want to start by just showing you a, a picture of my family. Um, I know Cynthia already mentioned them. I can't see it in front of me, so I'm going to turn around. Okay, so you see my husband James there. These are some of the loves in my life. Um, we've been married for 16 years. He's wonderful. I'm very grateful. I still feel like uh, I'm, I'm God's favorite. I know it's not true, but <laughs> but I get to be married to him. Um, my daughter, Siani, who's 12 in the eighth grade now. can't believe how, far, how much she's grown up. And uh, my son, Noah, who is, is seven in second grade. And um, I enjoy them. I'm so grateful to um, have the family that I have. Uh, in thinking about the love of my life, um, I was just thinking about God and how from the beginning of time, God had a plan to love us. I think about back in Genesis chapter 1, the scriptures tell us that God created man in his image. And if you think about it, why did God create mankind? Did he need something from us? And he's the creator of the universe. There's nothing that we could give him that he didn't already have. Why did God create mankind? Because he wanted to love us. He wanted to give to us. I think about it much the way that I think about how some of us plan and want to have children. Why do we have children? Because we want to share our love. Because we want to give. And that's the way that God feels about us. He created us to love us. We think about newborns, when we look at them, how sweet and innocent and pure they are. And we have hope for them, and we have dreams for them, and we imagine that we'll be close to them, and, 
we'll hold them and we'll protect them and we'll take care of them and we'll be in relationship together. And we have all these dreams and visions when we have children, when we look at a child. Now imagine God when he was creating you, how he felt, his dreams and his hopes for you, the closeness that you would share with him. He created us to rule over everything else that he created, to be dominant as over his creation. That of all the things he created, and there's an amazing, I mean, look at nature. It's just incredible things that God created, but he created us to be even over those things. That of all the things he created, we would be the object of his affection. That's God's plan. And that he would uh, have a love relationship with us as his creator. That we would walk with him, that he would guide us, that he would protect us and direct us, that he would provide for us, that we'd be united with him for all time, into eternity. And we know that Adam and Eve in the garden kind of messed up that plan for us, okay? But God still wants this, this relationship with us. This, this was his desire from the beginning when he made us. I want us to look at Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. David reflects on God as his creator. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is the way that David looked at the way God created him. That, you know, you love me since before I was born. And that's true about God and how he feels about us. He created us. The scripture says he's knit us together in our mother's womb. Now, I can't knit. I'm not really much of a knitter, okay? But I know that knitting takes time. I know that it's meticulous. I know that you've got to put the right stitches in the right places. God knit us together. He didn't just throw some material together and put a stitch in it. He took his time to be meticulous, to knit us together to design us, to create us perfectly. And he loved us since before we were born. He loves you. He wants you. He made you. He values us so much. This is the creator of the universe that took the time to invest in every single one of us. I know many of us, if we were invited to the White House, would feel very special. If we got to go have, and I don't know, maybe some of us don't really like our president, so maybe you wouldn't feel special. Maybe Oprah's house or one of your favorite stars, like you were invited to spend time with them. Wouldn't you feel special? Wouldn't you feel honored? I know we would dress our best. We would be so excited about that. But this is God, the creator of the universe, who wants this relationship with us, who's knit us together, who created us perfectly. He believes we're special, we're one of a kind. And he wants us to love him the way he loves us. So what's the problem? What happened? God created us. He has this plan. He has this vision for us to walk with him, that he would be the love of our lives the way that we're the love of his life. So what happened? The problem is, along the way, we fall in love with a whole bunch of other things. A lot of times it's what's right in front of us, the things that we can touch and see and hold. So we, our hearts, it's our human tendency for our hearts to drift away from God to a love for other things. And we make those things our God instead of him. This is a theme all throughout the Bible, especially we see it throughout the Old Testament. But even now to today, we see this very clearly in our life and our society. 
The Bible calls it idolatry, placing someone or something else in the place that God should have in our hearts. And since the beginning of time, this has been an issue for humanity. It's no different now. You know, the scriptures say God, he, he warns his people, have no other God before me. And it's not because God has some kind of selfish jealousy. It's because he knows how he created us. He knows how he made us, our souls. He knows that there's nothing except for our true love for him that's really going to satisfy us. And he tells us, don't love other things before me. But this is a hard thing for us to do. Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Romans 1. When Paul was talking to the church in Rome, he describes the fall of mankind. And in this verse, he says something that I think is very important for us to wrap our heads around today. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Worshipping created things rather than the Creator. They're good things that God created. They're wonderful things. But when we turn to worship what's created instead of the Creator Himself, that's when we have a problem. Idolatry worships the gift instead of the giver. We take genuinely good things and we make them ultimate things. And we have a problem in our hearts with that. Anything competing in our hearts for our trust, our dependence, our confidence, and our love becomes the love of our life. Listen to this quote by Martin Luther. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. You know, we're not bowing down to idols. Most of us, like what they did in the Old Testament where people created statues and, you know, prostituted themselves before these gods. And so sometimes we don't see idolatry as an obvious thing in our lives. The reason many of us don't acknowledge the idols in our lives primarily is due to the fact that we have an incorrect definition and image of what idolatry truly is. In her book, Nancy Piercy said this, Scripture treats the topic of idolatry far more subtly. An idol is anything we want more than God. Anything we rely on more than God. Anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. Idolatry is thus the hidden sin driving all other sins. She goes on to explain. Listen to this. For example, why do we lie? Because we fear the disapproval of people more than we want the approval of God. Or because we value our reputation more than we value our relationship with God. Or we're trying to manipulate someone into giving us something that we think we need more than we need God. The more visible sin, lying, is driven by an invisible turn of our hearts towards something other than God as the ultimate source of security and happiness. Isn't that deep? You ever think that deeply about why you lie? (laughs) It's because of the idols in our hearts. So what are some of the other loves that take the place or that can take the place of God in our lives? Let's talk about some of the other loves that we're drawn to. Um, first thing is our careers, our career goals and dreams, sacrificing everything for success. I know as a dancer growing up, I started professional training when I was five years old, um, and, and I trained professionally through all, throughout high school until I moved to New York. And 
mean, people could do really anything so that they would be successful. You know, it was maybe choosing what they ate or what they didn't eat. It was the amount of time we spent in the studio. I remember even times where, I mean, I, there, every decision I made was about the career. Like, okay, I would sacrifice other things that maybe my friends were doing because I needed to be at the studio. I didn't want to get a pedicure because I needed those calluses for the point shoes so that I wouldn't get blisters. So I'd never let anybody touch my feet, you know? It was just, everything was about how can I be successful in this career? And some, so many of us Americans, we are so driven by the desire for our goals and dreams to become a reality. Those are not bad things, but when it becomes the focus, the love of our life, then we have a problem. Success. Uh, materialism is another huge thing in America. We have so much stuff. We take days off to clean our stuff, to organize our stuff. We, we rent storage spaces to store our stuff. We have so, and then we watch TV and we feel like we need more stuff. And that's, that's marketing, right? That's what we're drawn to in our society. There's some, we're always told that we don't have enough. We don't have the right thing. We need to get the next one, the next phone, the next TV, the bigger, the better. Materialism. We can focus on that so much that it takes our hearts away from God. The desire for money, for wealth, for status. And we think that status equals success. Another thing that takes the love uh, of our life away from God is the desire to find a perfect mate. The desire for a romantic relationship. Thinking that a human relationship can fulfill us the way that God does. You know, if you look at dating websites, that's something that has, I mean, the, the, that has really increased over the years. Match.com, eHarmony, BlackPeopleMeet.com, ChristianMingle.com, Tinder, please don't. Hope you're not on Tinder. But anyway, you know, um, that the online dating industry makes... $1,749,000,000 a year, okay? So you think we have an interest in finding a mate in this country, in this world? Absolutely. And then, you know what's funny? Once we find them, then we want to change them. <laughs> then we want to adapt them to what we want. You know, my husband is an incredible man. He really is. Much of that is due to his relationship with God. But he has weaknesses. There's things sometimes I wish he would change. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, sometimes the very things that draw you to a person are the same things that can really annoy you sometimes. <laughs> you know, like, ah. Uh, and sometimes we can fall into this trap. I'm, I'm sure it's the same for him too, for me, right? But we can fall into this trap sometimes. And women, we have a real innate ability to, no matter what is good, to find out, to pick out what's bad and then try to fix it. Okay? We fall into this trap of wanting to change them. It's not going to happen. Let me just tell you, if you've tried that for long enough, you know it's not going to happen. You might as well just spit in the wind. Try to hold the, grab the wind. It's not happening. Now, God can change them, but you, you, you cannot. When that's our God, when a mate is our God, we end up disappointed. We end up hurt. Our expectations are, are, are not met. And it's because we're putting the expectation on them that we should have of God himself. They're not going to meet. They can never meet them. No matter how incredible the man is, there's no way that he's going to be able to ever meet that expectation. It's not who he was created to be. But we can get caught in this trap and get heartbroken and get distraught and get betrayed. And then we say, well, maybe it's not him. Maybe I need to find another person. Maybe it's a different. And we go, we try one after another after another, and we end up in the same place. We 
because we're trying to use men to fill this expectation of what God really should be for us. It's not him. Maybe it's that you've fallen in love with the wrong love, and it's misplaced. Having a family is another thing. You know, that's what the world often tells us. That's what we need to do. And, you know, if you're getting older and you don't have a family, something's wrong with you. you know, that's something that we can make a focus in our lives more than God. Our children. You know, America, I tell you, and it's not just America. Our children, some of them, they're overscheduled. They're overstressed. You know, we're fussing at them, yelling at them, trying to get them to, you know, have the best grades, the academics, the athletics. We're running them all over the place and all their activities, extracurriculars. Because we have made their success our God. You know? We met our, let our marriages suffer sometimes in the process of the amount of focus and attention we put on our children. This is not God's plan. But now, our children growing up and becoming independent, responsible adults is a good thing. But it should not be the love of our life. Another thing is physical appearance. Come on, ladies. Physical appearance. Yours and other people. Sometimes we're so consumed with how we look. You know that the cosmetics and cosmetic surgery and all of that is, is billion-dollar industry here in the United States. Why? Because we're constantly trying to find a way to change the way that we look. Now there's something, um, you know, this is a really, really scary thing, and I don't, I'm sure the picture's probably behind me. I don't know if you can see this. can't see it too well. So first it was like the, the, um, the thigh space, you know, in between your thighs. That was supposed to signify that you had a great body. Uh, then there's the bikini bridge, okay? But now there's this thing called the ab crack, that, that young women especially are trying to somehow create this line down the middle of their rib cage. It's, it's not healthy. It's not how our bodies were really made. It's really more about genetics than anything. But, but, but this is a big trending thing now, the ab crack, trying to get it cracked down your abs to show that your body is great. This is so sad. Through commercials, through media, through songs, we're constantly getting this idea, this message that something is wrong with us. Our looks, our physical bodies. You know, God loves us the way we are. We don't have to change for him to love us, for him to, to think we're amazing. But yet we fall into the trap of focusing so much on our physical appearance that we don't have time for God. Friendships is another thing that we can focus on. Pleasure, leisure. You know, I'm just going to have fun. I'm young. I'm going to live it up. I'll think about God later. You know, and oftentimes we get ourselves into situations that have consequences that are really hard to overcome. But we do whatever makes us happy, you know? And if that's stay in bed all day, that's what I do. We just, self could be our own God, you know? Power and status is another thing. You know, in a, in a country, people can kill, can take somebody else's life because they felt disrespected. You know we have a problem with power and status. I already said self. Here's another thing that can be an idol for us. False Christianity. False Christianity. Because there are people who claim to be Christians that practice every one of the things that I just said. What do I mean by false Christianity? I'm talking about when we view God 
as a means to an end. You know, in the Old Testament and even in some other nations now, there were times where people, because they wanted something, they would seek out that God and worship that God. If it was a God of fertility because they wanted to have children, then they would sacrifice to that God and they would dance around that God and they would pray to that God and worship that God in hopes that they could have children. You know, the same thing with the God of war. Worship that God, sacrifice to that God to help them to have victory in war. Doing things to appease a God so that you can get something out of it as a return. Do you view God as a means to an end? You have a wish list and you hope to be righteous enough so God can bless you and give you what you want? We worship and serve God sometimes because of the things we know he can give us. Health, wealth, happiness, financial security, stability, a nice family. You fill in the blank. Even our prayers to God are about our loves, the things that we love. It's not so much, God, show me what you want from me. Show me what will please you. Help me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's not so much that. It's, God, this is what I want. Can you please do what I want? (laughs) So who's really God? You. You know, often we love God for as far as he serves us, our own desires. So you're really your own God. You know, it's really about what you want, and then we sprinkle Christianity on it and try to act like that's what we really care about. But it's not. You're turning your Christianity into idolatry, seeking the things that God can give you instead of seeking God himself, the true God of the Bible. And so ask yourself, are you seeking God? so that you can get the things that you want? We need to seek God for who he is and for what he has done. You know, with any of these things that we love, that could be the love of our life instead of God, there's consequences. You know, oftentimes it's emptiness, it's loneliness, it's hurt, it's disappointment, it's heartache, sometimes it's addiction. There can be so many other things. We end up feeling inferior, we end up feeling second class, because... We don't measure up to the status quo in the world. Meanwhile, God is crowded into the corner of our lives. Hey, I'm over here. I love you. I accept you. I want you. Meanwhile, we're running after all these other loves. Psalm 10, verse 4. Reminds me of this scripture. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, There is no room for God. And we don't even have room in our thoughts. What consumes us every day? You know, why don't we go to God to understand exactly what it is that we need? Don't we do that when we have something that we've bought? We go to the manual if it's broken and we say, okay, let's go back to the manual because those are the people who made it. So they know how it's supposed to work. So we go to the directions and we try to figure out why the thing's not working so we can fix it. Why don't we do that with God? He's the one that made us. He's the one that created us. But yet we try to fix it on our own. Okay, it's not working. Well, let me try something else. Let me try something. Instead of going back to how were we created, how did he, how does he see that this needs to be fixed? That's really what we need to do. You know, and sometimes it's just our pride. We don't want to turn to God. We want to figure it out ourselves. So we go from one thing to the next, relationship to relationship. I'll fix it. I'll figure it. I'll get it better the next time. Patch it up, try it again, and then we end up in the same place. It doesn't work because that's not who we were created to be. 
God did not create the human heart to be satisfied by anything else except for a deep and personal walk with him. Him being the love of our lives. That's all that satisfies, ladies. Um, so how do we know what the love of our life is? So maybe we say, oh, that's not me. I mean, I love God. He's first in my life. How do we know what the love of our lives really are? I'm going to tell you just a couple practical things. I want to ask you to be honest with yourselves this morning about what the true loves of your life really are. Okay, the first thing is priorities. What are your priorities? You know, when we love someone, we make them a priority. Right? You think about them. They're on your mind throughout the day. When you walk by stores, you see something you think they would like, you think about them. You want to hear from them. You wonder what they're doing. You reach out to them throughout the day. So I know even for my children, sometimes I'm in the store and I see something I think they like. I want to get it for them. That's what we do when we love someone. There's a longing. Sometimes we sacrifice time with other people so we can spend time with them, with the people that we love. What do you notice that you always make time for? And what do you delay? You know, we say God's the love of our lives. Sometimes we can't make time to read the Bible. We can't make time to study the Bible. We can't make time to come to church. Because there's other things that really, honestly, are our priorities. We all have the same 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. It's really about what we do. What we choose to do with that time tells you what are the loves of your life. You know, procrastination, delaying, is one of Satan's greatest weapons. He delights in using it at every stage of life. He gets a 16-year-old to delay by saying, I'm much too young to think about God. The 18-year-old to say, I'm much too smart to think about God. The 21-year-old to say, I'm much too happy to think about God. The 25-year-old to say, I'm much too ambitious to think about God. The 30-year-old to say, I'm much too busy to think about God. The 40-year-old to say, I'm much too tired to think about God. The 50-year-old to say, I'm much too worried to think about God. The 60-year-old to say, I'm much too old to think about God. Much too often, death comes expectedly, and then it's too late to think about God. You know, at every stage of life, there are things that are pulling at our heart for our love, for our affection, for our focus, for our priorities. At every stage of life, it's not time that's the problem. It's our love. It's what is our true love. Another thing that we can look at to see what are the true loves of my life are the decisions that we make. What drives your choices? What drives the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the things that you do? When the rubber meets the road, what do you choose? Who do you choose to please? Look at your life. Look at your schedule. Look at your time. Look at your money. What would the people who are closest to you say matters most? you? Who do you see yourself bending over backwards for? What controls you? Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. That's Rebecca Manley. You know, on all these things, they can be crowding out of our lives the love that God has for us. And sometimes we say, we're consumed with these other things. We say we love God. It's more of, a, of an emotion of admiration and respect and thankfulness for God. But it's not necessarily love the way that God feels love. 
Because the way God feels loved, we see in John 14. John 14, verse 15, it says, If you really love me, you will keep and obey my commands. Verse 21, the person who has my commands and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And whoever really loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. I will make myself real to him. This is what Jesus says. We say we love God. What may, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of this book called The Five Love Languages, but it basically talks about how different people feel loved in different ways. Well, this is God's love language. It's obedience. So we say we love God, but we're not striving to obey his commands. We don't really love God. We love ourselves, and we want God to bless it. We have to be obedient to really have, make God the love of our lives. No one can serve two masters, the Bible says. So at, at, at some point, you're going to choose. Is it God I'm going to please or myself? Is it God or this other person? Is it God or my child? Wh- whatever it is, you're going to make a choice at the end of the day. And with those choices, if you look back at your life, you will see what are the true loves of your life. I talked earlier about how God took his time to create us and how he has plans and how he has vision for us. You know, one of the things that amazes me about God, the most vulnerable thing that God did when he created us, is that he gave us the ability to choose. He gave us the ability to choose. You know, what makes me feel special to my husband is that of all the other women in the world that he could have chosen, he chose me. And vice versa, I chose him. So there's something that's special that we feel because we've been chosen. You know, God wants us to choose him. He didn't automatically make us robots, must love me, must obey me, no matter what. He didn't make us like that. He gave us the ability to experience all kinds of other loves and in hopes that we would choose his love as the love of our lives. What a vulnerable thing for God to do, to not force us to love him, to let us choose amongst all the other loves, that he would be the love of our life. So what, why should we make God the love of our lives? Why? Let's look at a scripture in John. John chapter 8. Why should we choose God as the love of our lives? You know, the Bible teaches us that we get to know the love of God through Christ Jesus. And so learning about and studying about Jesus really helps us to see what love God has for us. So let's look at this passage together. Just to, I want to just give us a snapshot of the love that Jesus has for each one of us. In um, John chapter 8, actually I'm going to start in verse 2. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin... Be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, 
Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. So let's just talk about a couple things that we can learn about the love of God in this passage, in this interaction with Jesus and this woman. You know, it's amazing because in that society, women really did not, uh, were not valued and often not even spoken to in public by men. Jesus was always, you know, a, a valued women. He was ahead of his time. He was countercultural in that way. And we know in that, in that time, adultery was really, um, death by stoning was the way that they dealt with that. Okay, that was what it was worthy of. So what a humiliating scene. Here's this woman pulled out of the middle of the act of adultery, put in, the, in a big open village, okay? I have to ask myself, how does she get there? I mean, does she, as a young child, say, I think when I grow up, I would like to commit adultery. That's what I'm looking forward to. Probably not. She didn't dream for this. This is probably not where she wanted to end up in her life. Maybe it was just one poor decision after another. Maybe it was her longing to meet a need that only God could meet. And here she finds herself in the bed with a man who's not her husband. And so she gets pulled out. You know, she's got all these religious, staunch men staring her down in disgust. Probably the most humiliating day of her life. You know, I wonder, was she, was she naked? Like, did they, you know, they said they caught her in the act. Did they, did they let her get dressed first? Or did they just bring her out like that? Did she have a sheet around her? I mean, what, what was this like? must have been so humiliating to be caught in a situation that she may have thought she would never be in. You have to wonder why they, didn't, why they didn't bring a man. If they really cared about righteousness, right, why didn't they bring the man out too? But see, it was all about a trap, trying to get Jesus incriminated so that they had to have a reason to kill him. They didn't care about her. They didn't really value her. She was being used to try to catch Jesus in his words. You know, they didn't value her, but Jesus did. And it's amazing because of anybody who was righteous, Jesus was. They all knew this was wrong. She knew it was wrong, what she had done. But look at the way Jesus looked at her compared to the way that the other men did, the other religious men who, who knew the law. He bends down and he starts writing on the ground. And many people speculate about what he was doing. I don't know what he was writing. Was he, people say maybe he was writing a scripture or maybe he was praying. Or, we don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us what he was doing. But one thing we know is that at that very humiliating moment, he took all of the attention off of her and put it on himself. And so they're, what is, this, what is he doing? What is he writing? They're all asking questions. What is they're still acute. So meanwhile, she's standing there, and now all the eyes are not on her. Thank God. Wow, she must have been grateful. So then he stands up, and he says a statement that I don't think anyone expected. They're asking a question to try to get her killed, but really try to get him killed. Okay, so he says, anyone who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Boy, Jesus is so good. He's so wise. One sentence, he turned the whole thing around. You know, because instead of focusing on her and judging her, he made everybody have to take a look at themselves. You know, 
You know what's amazing about that? I mean, they, they were able to say, oh, okay, maybe we don't have the right to throw a stone. So he had them all take a look at themselves. See, Jesus wasn't, he didn't even just care about her. He cared about them too. He wanted all of them to have the opportunity to be closer to God, to have that moment of self-reflection. And when that happened, they started walking away. I imagine her be the first to throw a stone, her going, you know, just waiting for the stones to come. And after a while, straightening up, looking around and realizing nobody was there. Wow. Amazing. He stood up for her. He protected her. If there was anyone who had the right to throw a stone, it was Jesus. But he didn't do it. He looked at her with vision. You know what he said to her? Has no one condemned you? Woman, has no one condemned you? I mean, she must have been amazed that no one threw a stone at her. You know, has no one condemned? You know, when we say condemn, we basically mean, you know, you're not worth anything. When we condemn a building, we say, just tear it down. It's not worthy. It's no reason to keep it. Has no one condemned you? No one. Then neither do I. That's what he said to her. She was caught in the act of adultery. She was wrong. She did something she shouldn't have done. She knew it. But instead of judging her by that decision, he said, I have vision for you. You're not condemned. You're not worthless just because you did this. There's more for you. There's more that you can become. He showed her grace. He saved her life that day. That's how Jesus is. He loves us. He'll never give up on us. He always has vision for us. No matter what we've done, he has vision for us. He believes in us no matter what. This is just one snapshot of the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. He loves us. He forgives us. He stands up for us. No matter what decisions we've made, he sees the bigger picture. He didn't say, now, go back and go back and get into bed with that man now. Right? He still expects her to change. He still expects growth. But he gives her vision. He says, now go. Now that you have a second chance, don't live like this anymore. You're you're worth more than this. You can live differently than this. Amen. So God gives us chance by chance. He has the same love for us. So why? That's why God should be the love of our lives. Nobody can love us like God. Nobody can love us like Jesus does. And let me tell you one last thing. When Jesus and when God is the love of your life, all the other loves fall right into place. He he makes everything work together. You know? Sometimes we have fear, and I understand, we fear that if we really prioritize God the way the scriptures tell us to, we're going to miss out on something. We're going to lose something. We're going to get the short end of the stick, the short end of the deal. We're going to somehow miss out. He's going to steal from us. That's why it takes faith to follow Jesus. And the Bible defines that faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Wrapping it up, ladies, okay? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. And verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, I think this is really the issue for us when it comes to love of our life. We got the first one. Most of us believe that God exists. 
But what we don't believe is that he will reward those who earnestly seek him. That's where we get mixed up. That's where we think other things are going to meet those needs. That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That reward may not come in the form of money or may not come in the form of a relationship or material possession. But God knows us and he knows what we need and he knows how to meet those needs. And he says, if you have faith, if you follow me, obey in faith, I will reward those who earnestly seek me. You know, without a standard, without a guide, without his love being our first love, everything gets out of whack. When we're obedient to God, he brings all the other areas into focus. You know, with romantic relationships with men, you know what he does? He helps us to see clearly what it is we should even be looking for in a man. What's important in a man. The qualities that we need. You know, when our focus is there on God and our, day, our love for him is in place, he gives us so much clarity and he gives us discernment and wisdom to make good choices. You know, it's funny that we get this backwards sometimes and we can even try to find the man and then try to turn him into a spiritual person when he's really not, you know? And it doesn't work because his motivation is all wrong. And But funny enough, we often are trying to change the other person. You ever been on an airplane and they give you the rules for safety and they tell you, you know, if, if the oxygen drops down, what are you supposed to do? Put the mask on yourself first and then you can help other people. And see, that's where we are. Sometimes we're so busy trying to help somebody out. I want to come to church for my children, for my husband, for my this, my that. Can you put the mask on yourself first? Then you can help everybody else. (laughs) Marriage. You know, the Bible gives us instructions about how to have healthy marriages. The essential qualities that we need. Love and respect. We find those in Ephesians chapter 5. He teaches us how to be the wives that are joyful, that enjoy our marriages, even with our husbands who are not perfect. He teaches us how to have a family. How to really prioritize things in the right way. You know, Matthew 10, Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. See, when we don't have Jesus, God, as the love of our lives, we never really learn to love these people in our lives the way that we really were intended to. But God can bring it all into place. Parenting, we learn to instruct them in the ways of the Lord, to help them develop godly character. With our careers, we can be even more indispensable and valuable as employees when Jesus is the Lord of our lives, when he's the love of our lives. I just want to share quickly about that. There's a scripture in Colossians 3. I remember when I became a Christian. I was dancing for Dance Theater of Harlem, and there was um, an opportunity I had to um, understudy one of the principal dancers. Now, I was young. I was one of the core dancers. Core is kind of like the chorus, the background dancers, right? Um, And we were doing a piece, and I was understudying one of the head dancers of the company. And um, I had this scripture in mind that, you know what? He says, whatever we do, do it as if doing it for the Lord and not men. So I really tried to focus on the role, learn it inside and out, understand the part, the timing, and everything. Well, one day we were in California, and she was on stage. She was two months pregnant. She came off stage, and she bolted. We were, I mean, the piece had already started, and I was in the piece in the core, right? So her solo's coming up, and she can't do it. We're in the middle of the performance. You know what? I said, God, be with me. I went on stage, and I did her part. And after that, I started getting, that was like the breakthrough for me in my career. I started getting a whole bunch of other leading roles after that. But I really give that credit to God because it was me trying to do it as if doing for the Lord and not men. 
And he blessed my career because of that. You know, when you love God first and most, he helps everything to fall into place. Money. The scriptures say money. Don't put your hope in it. It's so uncertain. Isn't that true? But he teaches us how to have money and how to manage it. He gives us so much wisdom in the scriptures about that. It has a proper place. He teaches us to be wise, how to live joyfully, whether we have little or much. Pleasure. He fills our lives. He gives us life to the full. Friendships that we can be loyal to. Speak the truth in love. That when we go through bumps, we can work through things and not have to cut each other off and move on. These are things that God teaches us when we make him the love of our life. Everything else comes into place. You know, I love my husband. He is the earthly love of my life. Sometimes we do call each other that when we pick up the phone. We call each other. I answer the phone. Hi, love of my life. And, you know, we really are. We love each other. But I have a greater love in my life than James Warren, Jr. And I know if my husband were to pass away one day, it would be very difficult. I would be, I would be so, so, so sad. But I know that I will not fall apart. Why? Because he's not the ultimate love of my life. It's my love for God that makes me strong. It's my love, God, that will get me through anything that I have to face in this life. He is the only constant in my life. Everything else can change. Only God is constant. And that's why he's the love of my life. Ladies, what will really fill our hearts with love, joy, and satisfaction? What will complete us? What will provide a sense of peace, contentment, self-love, and acceptance just the way we are? Where can we find a love that will never end? never be taken away from us? Where can we find value that is not attached to our looks and our accomplishments? Where can we find power to start over with a new life, to find forgiveness, grace, and mercy the way the woman caught in adultery did? Where can we find the strength to go on when our dreams and hopes are not fulfilled? It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, that's verse 37, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for you is unstoppable. It's inseparable. There's nothing that can keep you from it, no matter what you've done in your life. He's crazy about you. He desires you. He adores you. He will never change the way he feels about you. You don't have to change anything to make him love you. He loves you just the way you are. You are precious to him. That's something we can count on. That's something we can put our confidence in, our security in. Where do we find that? We find it in Jesus Christ. When it was predicted that Jesus was going to be born, the angel said to Mary, Matthew 1, it said about Jesus, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Savior. For he will save his people from their sins, that is, prevent them from failing and missing the true end and scope of life, which is God. Jesus can prevent us from missing the true end and scope of life, which is God. God knows only his true unconditional love will satisfy. He knows that we're going to be discouraged, disheartened, disappointed, and hurt if anything else is the love of our life instead of him. 
Will you be honest with yourself today about the true loves of your life? Will you stop focusing on these loves that cannot satisfy? Will you step on, out on faith? Will you decide to do that, to make time to study the Bible, to study his word, to learn how to make him your priority, what it truly means to make him the love of your life? Ladies, this is what I'm striving to do every day, and I hope you'll join me. Thank you. Thank you.